if we can, you know, build foundational uh, com- sovereign computing hardware, you know, Bitcoin centric sovereign hardware, and we open source all, all everything we do, um, you know, which we're doing, uh, we can help, you know, uh, people access and use Bitcoin and, and store their their money, maybe have better control over their data, their identity, their their privacy, you know, achieve more sovereignty. And maybe we can have a smoother transition in the coming decade uh, to a more Bitcoin centric world and, and hopefully avoid some of the horrible stuff that's going to come, you know, throughout the coming years. You're listening to The Wake Up Podcast with Alex Fetsky the place where the most dynamic thinkers and practitioners in the world drop truth bombs and contrarian viewpoints to help you become the best version of yourself. Find us on the Fountain app and send us a boost with a comment. Zach Herbert. He's the founder of Foundation Devices, and he joins me on today's show to discuss his personal journey and his latest product, the Foundation Passport. This was a unique, unique episode. Like It was a wide-ranging discussion on things like one of my favorite topics and something that's not very well discussed, the world of atoms and how it's been forgotten in the purest, um, in the pursuit, sorry, of success in the world of bits and bytes. Uh, we spoke a little bit about the Foundation logo and its inspiration, uh, Isaac Asimov, talked about like the fall and the collateral damage during the interregnum, which is the transition between the old world and the new world. We talked about what is meant by sovereign and what I think is one of the most also like under-discussed topics in Bitcoin and more broadly, which is, is privacy a right or a service? So we had a really good discussion about that. You can find out more about Foundation Devices at foundationdevices.com. And I hope you enjoy this podcast with Zach. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Wake Up Podcast. And today we're doing something different. We are, we are not talking to John Vallis. Uh, and <laughs> we're not going to talk about the alchemy of existence. <laughs> no, we, um, we've got Zach on from Foundation Devices and we're going to talk about not just hardware wallets and things like that, but I think I want to talk about uh, sovereignty and how one goes down the path of actually building a Bitcoin business, um, the trials and tribulations, and see where this discussion goes. So, Zach, thanks for um, thanks for coming on and joining me, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely, bro. So, I guess, first and foremost, uh, you, I guess, are the founder of um, Foundation Devices, which I have one here, which... Uh, without sounding too much like a shill, uh, I got to play with this week. And hands down, like I, I have two two things to say. One confession is an MVK is going to want to shoot me, but I've never actually used the cold card. I'm sorry. Um, in fact, the only fucking hardware wallet that I'd used up until about a year ago was Ledger. And that just happened because that's the first fucking thing I ever bought. And that's what I was used to. In fact, funny story is in 2017, I thought I was a genius. And uh, when the price of uh, wallets skyrocketed because there was a supply shortage, I managed to get a hand, uh, like I bought like a hundred of these ledgers. And then obviously we hit bear market. And then I was like sitting there with all these fucking ledgers. And I'm like, what do I do with these things? I couldn't resell it. It's pretty bad. <laughs> so, Multi-sig, you can do that. Oh, uh, dude, it was the dumbest shit ever. So anyway, that's why I've 
consistently use ledgers and I never bothered uh, getting anything new, but came across this and thought it was fantastic, how to play with it, confirmed my fascination with it. So yeah, I guess I want to throw it over to you, man, and you know, maybe tell us a little bit about you and then sure. we can weave into how you came to found foundation. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I've been to Bitcoin since 2013 mm-hmm. um, and, you know, back before there were hardware wallets. And I remember back in the day using the um, Armory wallet on the computer and like taking mm-hmm. an old uh, little PC and pulling out the Wi-Fi card and having the air gap machine. And you have to do your, you know, you move the unsigned transaction via USB stick mm-hmm. to the laptop and and so on. So that was it's kind of crazy how much better uh, the UX is today compared to the air gap computer requirement back in the day. But, you know, I was fascinated when hardware wallets came out, um, in 2015, 2016, you know, with Trezor and Ledger, uh, I'm, a, I'm a mechanical engineer by training. So mm-hmm. really geek out about any computer hardware, you know, type stuff. Um, and, you know, I was a big user of these products, um, actually was selling them, uh, on Open Bazaar in like 2016, which was that decentralized okay. marketplace, yeah. which is long gone. I think they they ended up on the wrong side of the four cores. The uh, the founders of that project, but was selling these devices and giving customer support for them and everything. So that's kind of how I got into hardware wallets and you know Bitcoin custody in general. I never I never really got into Bitcoin because of any philosophical leanings, like not libertarian, not sovereignty. I was very much just into the NGU aspect back then. Mm -hmm. Um, And then over time, just being inundated with podcasts and blog posts and Bitcoin, Twitter and Reddit, you know, you start to go down the rabbit hole and it's almost like Bitcoin became my gateway drug to caring Mm -hmm. more about sovereignty, which I think Mm -hmm. happens with so many of us. Totally. Um, It's an infection. It's just, it's, it, yeah. it's a good one for, for sure. But I think it's unstoppable, you know, once mm-hmm. you, once you start to get in, into it. Uh, and, you know, just, I think, so I was working in like a, a company. Um, I and actually a couple of my co-founders of foundation uh, were working together at a company in Boston, uh, making ASIC miners for a couple of different cryptocurrencies, not Bitcoin, unfortunately. It's like mm-hmm. not well capitalized enough to do uh, Bitcoin ASIC miners, but basically allowed us to get a crash course to bring hardware to market. Um, mm-hmm. you know, going through the entire process of idea to actually shipping, you know, millions of dollars of, of pretty complex uh, hardware. And I just really wanted to make an impact on Bitcoin. You know, I think we I was I was most surprised by the fact that the hardware wallets hadn't really changed since 2015 or 2016. Like the form factor of Ledger and Trezor is, you know, generally mm-hmm. the same. There's some pretty cool entrants like Cold Card, and I was a Cold Card user, and actually still am, you know, personally, mm-hmm. um, because I was starting to do more advanced things like multisig and stuff like that for myself. And I was just, frankly, surprised at how the major hardware wallet companies hadn't really kept up with all the latest innovation in Bitcoin, especially around things like multisig. It kind of seemed like they were, you know, either they hadn't really made it lowered like they hadn't lowered the barrier to make it easier to use these devices for the next wave of adopters um things like seed words and that kind of thing are still really difficult alone mm-hmm. and then you kind of get into the general ux which can be challenging so i think that was a big aspect of it but the other big aspect was just i felt like they were chasing after all these different coins especially ledger 
and I've kind of fallen behind on the Bitcoin side of things. And you know, I was listening to the St- Stefan Levera podcast in 2019 with uh, Michael Flaxman. I remember it was titled, that. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was one of like the most classic podcasts, mm-hmm. and it, and it had an enormous influence, I think, on now my whole life direction because it was titled "Every Like Why Every Bitcoin Hardware Wallet Sucks, sucks or yeah. Why Every Hardware Wallet Sucks," something like that. And it ended up being like a wish list of features, right? There were things like um, being air gapped was was a wish list, which maybe isn't for everyone. But if you are, if you want like the best security, you usually want to be air gapped in some way, you know, meaning you're not plugging a cable in or anything like that. Uh, using a camera and QR codes was one of the really interesting ideas for achieving that air gap. I don't think back mm-hmm. then there was anything doing that. Maybe Spectre DIY had started to like research that and put out some interesting stuff, but there was no like. A commercially available, you know, device you could just go buy online that did that. Um, you know, embracing uh, Bitcoin multi-sig and being like a first-class citizen, being able to actually store like the details of your multi-sig configuration on the device was something really big that you couldn't do on a Trezor ledger. So you couldn't do like basic things like verify that an address you're receiving to actually belongs to your multi-sig, which is like such a basic thing you just couldn't do it back then. And there's there are a bunch of other items too. And so I was like, okay, like we're gonna we're gonna start a new company and we're gonna you know make a, a better hardware wallet. So that, that's how it started back in you know 2020. So we we quit our jobs in in March of 2020 and you know officially started working full time on the company in April. And soon after that, announced Passport, you know our our hardware wallet. And uh, since then, have you know I think come a long way. Still still very early stages for us, but um, you know kind of thinking more about not just making a better hardware wallet, but trying to make it easier for everyone to become sovereign individuals is really our mission right now. You know, trying to lower the barrier to sovereignty because so many of us want sovereignty and, you know, we think so many people will yearn for sovereignty in this decade, but it's just still really damn hard. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're focused on now. Mm-hmm. A couple of things I want to, a couple of threads I want to pull on. One is I'm, I've got this vision in my head and one of my heroes, entrepreneurial heroes, is Steve Jobs. Mine too. I think for the, the guy, yeah, the, <laughs> I the got guy the was, different posters behind me as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he was incredible. And and I think one of the things that I love about his story and the Apple story in general is the the classic, and it's become a trope now. You know, it's like a you know the the Silicon Valley build a startup out of a garage, but like the tinkering with an actual piece of hardware and the focus on building and creating something beautiful. Uh, I think he basically personifies more than anyone else. And I mean, it's a fucking damn shame that the guy died. Like, I think the world would be a very different place um, with him as the, you know, the, the example of an entrepreneur as opposed to fucking Elon Musk, but Elon's pretty good too, but like, he's no, he's no damn Steve jobs. Right. So yeah, he's um, so, so I'm kind of, I, I have this place, a soft spot in my heart for people who tinker with, hardware or build hardware more so than software. And I like software and I appreciate software. And, you know, while in many ways I've been in the software game, building apps like Amber and this and that, like I've never actually been a software developer and I've always been personally a little bit more interested in in hardware. I remember back when I was still in Australia, you know, my closet was full of like Arduino uh, circuit boards and (laughs) shit like that, that I was fucking around with. And that stuff always, always attracted me. And, you know, maybe it's a function of the fact that 
when I was young, like I grew up with my uncle was a builder. Uh, I studied civil engineering. Uh, we, we built houses together. Like we did all that sort of stuff. So like working with your hands, I mean, this is obviously different because you're, you're working with something smaller and it's more electronics focused, et cetera, but it's, I don't know. First, I just want to say that I find that interesting and it's a, it's a meaningful pursuit. And in fact, NVK sort of mentioned this to me as well. It's like when you're building something that is like hardware and physical, you're actually like, I mean, I don't know how to say this, but 90% of software is just fucking horse shit. Like it really is. It's just, it's just fluff to me. It's like people are building things that, you know, don't really need to be built. Whereas when you're building something useful that someone has to use and physically, you know, push, and maybe I'm just a fucking traditionalist, but I don't know. It seems like there's a, there's a different level of quality and value or something there for me. And, um, and I don't know, I wonder how you see that and whether that forms part of your personal identity is this idea of like building something physical. Yeah, it is for sure. I mean, when I was originally in school, I started out in computer engineering and then within one semester I'd switched to mechanical. Mm-hmm, Cause mm-hmm, I just, mm-hmm. there's something about, um, building something tangible and then holding it in your hands and knowing that like, you know, you, you, and, and of course the team made this right from nothing, mm-hmm. right. You kind mm-hmm. of brought it into existence. And I think, I mean, software obviously is is such an integral part of what we do. And of course the, the software runs on hardware as well. You got to have mm-hmm. the, the firmware <laughs> and the user interface and all that. So um, I just feel like if you're only doing software, you're essentially delivering that software using someone else's hardware, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So like if you're, if you're a software developer, you are actually shipping an experience that ends with, or maybe starts with the end user using someone else's hardware, whether that's the mouse, the trackpad, the screen, it's a laptop, a desktop, whatever it is, a phone uh, to interact with your software. And you're often constrained by the hardware maker. If you think about how Apple and the app store constrains, you know, the software developers. And uh, I mean, you could talk, we go on a tangent for that for hours, right? But you can think about how they constrain them from a business model. You can think about how they constrain them from a design perspective where you can only, you know, design for certain screen sizes on the iPad. You can only have your apps and certain aspect ratios that's compatible with the iPad multitasking. So I feel like there's something really special about being able to actually own the whole experience mm-hmm. from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And it's also intimidating and like really difficult. It's like a muscle you have to work, work out and do it repeatedly to get it right. Uh, I was reading an amazing book last month, uh, Tony Fidel, who is one of the uh, creators of the iPod and then also the mm-hmm. founder of Nest, um, who then you know left, sold it to Google, so on. He wrote a book called Build. And he was talking about how it takes three generations to like perfect a product. And I'm feeling that right now. Mm-hmm. We're on Gen mm-hmm. 2 now of Passport, right? We did our Founders Edition last year. We were doing our batch two now, which we probably should have just called it like Passport 2 or something like mm-hmm. that, because mm-hmm. it's totally a new design. Uh, and then, you know, I'm sure in another year, 18 months, we'll have like a Gen 3. And it's like everything we're doing, all the mistakes we're making, all goes into improving yeah, the product. And good. then, oh man, once you, once, if you can get to the point where you get to Gen 3, and sometimes companies will, right, they'll, they'll fail to do that. They'll run out of money or they'll, you know, have the trouble delivering, you know, along the way or so many things that can go wrong. But I feel like if you can get there, you have that muscle as like an organization. And then you feel more confident that you can just like actually execute and build these devices from scratch. And that's what we're trying to do, right? It's like, we're trying to build these amazing devices. It feels incredible being able to do physical things, 
and ship physical product, but then we're also trying to build up like the internal muscles and know-how to be able to do it repeatedly. And the best example of that is Apple, right? I mean, the mm-hmm, stuff they can totally, do, totally. Comp- the quality, the tolerancing, the cost, the, I mean, you look at any of the stuff they put out, like that's, that's our goal, right? To get to, that's like every, every company's goal mm-hmm. that makes hardware is to get to that quality. And it's going to take a long time to get there. But in short, like, I don't think I could ever work on something that wasn't physical, Mm-hmm. You know, like, I just don't think I could, I just wouldn't have the motivation if it was just like a, like an app or something like that. Yeah. There's a special place for it. It's, um, I was speaking with sailor a couple of weeks ago. And one of the questions that I, I can't remember if I even got to challenge him with this one, but <laughs> you know, everyone talks about, uh, dematerialization, you know, D mm. this, D that, and all this sort of shit. And Minimalism they talk about like, as well. Yeah, it's a huge one. yeah, it is. And it's the sort of, this incessant chase for uh, success of what I say is like success in the world of bits and bytes. Right. And this Mm -hmm. is that software thing. And it's the the world of atoms has basically been forgotten. And Mm -hmm. this is something that uh, what's his name? Peter Thiel talks about. He's like in the seventies, you know, we'll promise the the flying car and we got (laughs) 180 characters or whatever it is. And yeah. And that's, I honestly think, as much as digitization has its place, uh, there is something, um, th- there is a massive gap in the realm of innovation mm-hmm. uh, or, or the realm of innovation in atoms, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, again, I think exemplifies what you guys are doing and what I personally find interesting in the pursuit of this sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean... I think there's a couple things there. One is like, there's the extreme minimalism, right? Which I think is needs to end. And that's one of the reasons we went from, we weren't thinking about that last year. We had just kind of a more like normal looking kind of device, you know? Mm-hmm. And now we have this thing, which looks more like, like art deco-ish. We actually have this, like we molded in this, um this pattern on the back cover where you kind of it reflects the light and almost looks like circuits. Like, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we call we call our new design language digital deco. Mm-hmm. We're trying to be more art deco and focus. I read a really cool blog post last, maybe in last year, or the year before, from this designer. I think Tobias Van Schneider, who's pretty big in like the design community, and he said art deco will be like the language of the the decade or something like that. And I was like, this mm-hmm. art deco thing is cool, and so. When I and and Andy, our head of design, were were working on new logo, you know, new design for Passport, we're like, I was really pushing us internally to go more Art Deco, but that's more of a throwback, right? And so <laughs> we end up going more of like a futuristic Deco type style, and I'm so happy that we were able to, I, I think, execute on that pretty well because it kind of defines everything we're going to be doing now uh, in terms of the, you know, design language where it's not enough to just make like a device. Like we don't want to be bound by the same, same design rules that you see from like an Apple, right? Like mm-hmm. the thing that drives me crazy in hardware is when everything looks the same, <laughs> when, when everything is just like as minimalistic as possible, especially like you see all the computers, they all try to look exactly like the MacBooks, you yeah, see exactly. the phones, yeah. they try to look exactly like the iPhone. So we really wanted to do like an intentional departure, but then also we want to add like a, like a nostalgia to it. That's mm-hmm. why we, at least for now we have like the keypad and the more familiar form. For, well, maybe more familiar if you're like, you know, 
25 years or older, maybe not yeah, if you 90s like baby, a, like a 90s or 80s yeah, baby. Nine, exactly. <laughs> then it's more familiar because you just want to like pick it off the, off the table. You want to like fiddle with it. You kind of know how to use it. That was important to us. We wanted to make it be like, you know, if you're going to be doing all this advanced technology, you know, Bitcoin, which has such a high learning curve and is so intimidating to so many people, you want to try to make a device that's like approachable mm-hmm, and not mm-hmm. something that's intimidating. If you compare like, uh, like you look at a, look at a ledger on a table versus like a passport on a table. How does it make you feel? Is it something you want to pick up? Is it something you want to start playing with? Do you know how to turn it on already? Do you know how to navigate with it? Do you, you know what I mean? Like there's, so there's mm-hmm. all those aspects of it, which were so much fun to, to work on. And it's something we just think about a lot. And so um, that's just, yeah, it's just like quarter our, our DNA. And so it's, uh, I'm just really excited. We were able to do that and um, try to get away from, the the ultra minimalism that I think plagues our society uh, today. Yeah, I, it's funny. My girlfriend yesterday, when I was messing around with it, she's like, "What the hell are you doing with the Nokia?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Let's get OPSEC." You know, <laughs> I was like, "Babe, it's a wallet." And she's like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> well, we've actually had people go through like a TSA and be happy that no one asked them like what it was. You know, mm-hmm, we've been joking mm-hmm. around at doing like a plausible deniability mode where you turn it on and it looks like a like a phone screen or something. But I mean, look, like we're we're gonna do touch don't joke. Stuff. That's a fucking great idea. It is a, it is a good idea. We, we will do it. We will. But I'm sure we'll do touchscreen stuff in the future as well. You know, but there's something about the keypad and like the Nokia style form factor mm-hmm. that I just I don't know. I, I really like it. Yeah, dude, me too. And and please, like if it if it turns on and it's got the Nokia sign or some shit that'd be hilarious <laughs> um, so microsoft doesn't sue us for that or whoever they uh, whoever owns nokia now yeah who owns nokia <laughs> these days anyway i think they <laughs> sold it i'm not sure <laughs> again everything it's funny everything microsoft seems to touch they fuck up yeah um, maybe, maybe there's one acquisition they did that was okay but anyway well actually um you mentioned too like the teal and the bits versus atoms you know we we've thought a lot about like like why there aren't that many companies doing hardware and which mm-hmm. is like why we haven't seen the same type of innovation in hardware as we've seen in software. And actually like one of my theories for this is the open source aspect, which is also core to everything we do. So everything we do, hardware, software is fully open source, you know, under all the proper licensing and everything. Um, and I think there's this aspect of like, if you're building something digital, you're building, let's say like an app, you go onto GitHub and you have all these libraries and frameworks that you can just pull from. You'd be like, I'm going to do, you know, if let's say you're building an iPhone app, I mean, you have all, all Apple gives you a whole SDK, right? A software development kit. And you have all these different libraries you can use. So you're not starting from zero. You're like, you're essentially benefiting from the work of hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. that have come before you that have written frameworks and libraries and, components and everything that you can kind of pick and choose and use to make your work. So it's like you're it's like you're building like on top of human progress. Totally. And and I think that's one of the reasons why it's like you can bring a whole really impressive software product to market with a very small team today. Like you can do that. However, on the hardware side, you haven't seen that same like embrace of open source. And so it's like when you're starting a hardware company, you're almost always mostly doing things from scratch. Like there's not like you can drag and drop blocks and make a chip, for example. Everything mm-hmm. is like super IP protected. You need to mm-hmm. you need to mm-hmm. buy the IP from someone. You need to you know go through the found the proper foundry for making a chip. On the hardware side, 
you, I mean, you have to pay all this money just to license the software to allow you to do, you know, make CAD or circuit board design or anything. You're, you're paying a lot of money for the software. And then because everything's so expensive, no one's making their stuff public. And so you're having to just do everything from scratch. There's no like circuit board builder where you can just like drag it in. Mm. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's actually been like so slow in the last couple of decades in terms of, uh, progress in Adams. I mean, there's obviously other reasons like venture capital, you know, and which started in Adams with, uh, mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. chips, you know, yeah, and microprocessing, chips, exactly. yeah. but ended up drifting to software. But I think there's this aspect of like still in that when it comes to Adams, it's really hard to capitalize and build on like the works of other humans. You're almost always starting like from scratch and, and that, that makes it just, I think exponentially more difficult to bring something physical into the world. Mm. Well, may- maybe, I mean, maybe explicitly it is, I guess there, there is an implicit uh, progress there in the sense that um, a chip in 1950, you know, yeah. is very different to a chip today. Right. So, so there is an implicit That's true. level of progress because, you know, I noticed like, for example, you guys have a camera, right. Yeah. Uh, it's tiny. 10 years ago, that wouldn't have been possible. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, so I guess there, there is still a little bit of that. And I guess th- this is, the benefit of the the capitalist process is that it's still, even though it is hindered by regulation and by stupid IP laws and by all sorts of other things, it still manages to somehow uh, allow us to build mm-hmm. off the back of others. But yeah, as you said, there is the open source software movement is actually outside of the jurisdiction of uh, or has at least lived outside of the jurisdiction of stupid bureaucrats and IP laws and all this other stuff. So it's managed to really accelerate uh, in in relation to uh, the the pace of innovation in the hardware space. For sure. So yeah, that's a that's a, that's an interesting observation. So um, b- before we dig into some other stuff, I wanted to ask you about the the logo and the name, um, sure. and see <laughs> where the inspiration of that came from. So the logo was, was it the book. <laughs> it was the book, Asimov. Okay. Yeah, it was the book. Right. So and it, and a lot of the people that really like the books and have read like the whole series get annoyed because we only kind of steal it from like the first the first book, like the first mm-hmm. foundation. Everyone starts. We've had people re- reply to our stuff and are like, "This isn't actually accurate." And <laughs> it's 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 a little it's loose, you know. It's loose. I'm, I'm a fan of the books. I've read all the books, so like I get it. But essentially, right the and it was actually kind of funny and coincidental that Apple came out with the foundation TV show. Uh-huh. As well. <laughs> that was <laughs> the so last bad year. though. They destroyed it was the fucking travesty. Oh it, it, it was, it was so sad, but the, the logo and the font was actually similar to what we use in our, in our mm-hmm. wordmark, which cracked me up. And, and our, <laughs> we, we were talking about that internally as well. We're like, this is almost like the same like design language that yeah, we that have. Is true. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I think there's the idea of one, uh, you know, hardware is is the foundation of of everything, right? And so I mm-hmm. think there's just something cool about calling a, a company foundation. You know, two is um, I was shocked that it's like that name isn't in use really by any other big company. Now there's an NFT platform, unfortunately, but that's a shame. Uh, I don't think it's a good name for an NFT marketplace, personally. Um, mm-hmm. But then, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a sci-fi nerd. That the Asimov out. Uh, inspiration was was crucial here. And, you know, the general plot of the book is at least the first book is that, you know, society is on the verge of 
that collapse and there's the one guy that can predict that it's going to happen and uh he you know establishes a uh a, essentially a planet on the edge of the universe to catalog all of humanity's knowledge so that mm-hmm. you know ideally the fall would, would lessen instead of being you know ten thousand years or whatever it would be a thousand years of, of mm-hmm. chaos which is kind of crazy because there's some parallels to the world today mm-hmm. and we were thinking mm-hmm. a lot about that back in 2020 where it wasn't even as bad yet i mean this was before mm-hmm. covid and we were already thinking about that when we started the company um I think since then, I think it's obvious there's parallels. And we actually wrote a blog post um, on our site comparing Bitcoin to Asimov's you know, foundation, which was a fun one to write. But yeah, the general idea is that, uh, and this goes back to the open source aspect too, if we can you know, build foundational uh, com- sovereign computing hardware, you know, Bitcoin-centric sovereign hardware, and we open source all, all everything we do, um, you know, which we're doing, uh, we can help, you know, uh, people access and use Bitcoin and, and store their, their money, maybe have better control over their data, their identity, their, their privacy, you know, achieve more sovereignty. And maybe we can have a smoother transition in the coming decade uh, to a more Bitcoin-centric world and, and hopefully avoid some of the horrible stuff that's going to come, you know, throughout the coming years. Um, so that was the general idea. So that's why we called it, you know, uh, foundation, foundation devices and the logo we actually redid. It was still like a triangle type thing. I didn't really like it. It was like a futuristic cityscape type logo, but we redid Mm -hmm. this one, which is, um, three chords. We thought like chords are, you know, like the little slice of a circle. We think it's Mm -hmm. cool because there's all these different definitions and, um, you know, like a three part story, like the, like the next traditional narrative arc, you know, um, there's, there's definitions in math and computer science and, and obviously, uh, you know, geometry. And, and we just really liked that. It was the three chords that you see the triangle between in the middle of them, but the triangle is not actually there kind of also has like the decentralization mm-hmm. aspect to it. Um, where, uh, and then of course, a, a, a triangle is an extremely, um, you know, solid, like engineering type object, you know, like a, like a trust type structure. So those were some of the inspirations for the logo. I like it. What really did it for me was seeing it carved into the actual metal. We did some renderings of that when we were designing the logo. We did it. We actually did one that maybe we'll release one day, but it's like, like we did like an all in one computer one where the whole, it's just carved into the back of that thing as like the vent, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe we'll Mm -hmm. get there in in the future, but um, it looked so good. I was like, all right, like we got it. We got to do this. So, uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the genesis of the the company name and the logo. It's beautiful. I I like what you said about the, basically the limiting of collateral damage during the transition. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I wrote an article last year as part of Bitcoin times number four, which was called um, uh, fire Bitcoin teleportation. And the idea was that, Fire, oh, so edgy. All, all your titles, I love. I know, it. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the the premise was that fire is kind of like what made us into sentient uh, Homo sapiens today, right? Like, mm-hmm. like it 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 enabled us to digest food better, and it actually allowed the brain mm-hmm. to expand in size, yeah. and therefore, yeah. you know, we are who we are today. Uh, and my my whole argument is that we haven't had a a, a seismic shift in. Uh, the structure of civilization, humanity, uh, that significant until Bitcoin. Like I think Bitcoin changes everything um, because for the first time we actually have the ability to uh, quantify and accurately measure 
all of human action and behavior, uh, economically speaking. Like we've never actually been able to do that. And if you look at all of human civilization, in in some ways you could actually uh, say it's been this pursuit of trying to uh, accurately define and measure our behavior and actions such that we can cooperate amongst each other. Um, and when we've used low fidelity means, like really poor money, we always inevitably end up with lack which spirals into killing each other and beating each other over. So, so it's like always so civilization always collapses and mm-hmm. we've just gotten better and better at uh, using some modality as a, as a, as a language of value. Right. If, mm-hmm. So if I had to think of what money is, it's a language of value. Now Bitcoin's kind of like reached the point of perfection and that shifts civilization big time. And the analogy that I use for people is that, to date, we're like a person, we're like a blind man who's been trying to build a house with an elastic tape measure. And somehow this fucking house is standing and it's, you know, still holding together and God knows how it is. But post a Bitcoin civilization or post a Bitcoin standard, we're like a sighted person building a house with a functional tape measure. Like the, the level of quality will be night and day. Like we will definitely live in a different world. Mm-hmm. But where I'm getting to with this is that the transition between the interregnum is going to be a fucking shit show. And it's already becoming a a shit show. Yeah, it really is. It really is like it's the it's the literal clown world. And what I've always told people, you know, who are sometimes a little bit too optimistic about Bitcoin's going to fix everything. I'm like, don't be so fucking sure. Like during the transition, so much shit's going to break. Now, we win in the end anyway, because truth and physics and math just fucking wins. Like no amount of praying that two plus two equals five is going to make it equal five. It's, it's going to equal four at the end of the day. Um, the only question is how much collateral damage occurs along the way. And and that sort of when you mentioned <laughs> what you said before is like what it reminds me of. I've, I've always been a big proponent of that. Like our job is not to uh, make Bitcoin succeed. Our job is actually to minimize the collateral damage as Bitcoin does its thing. <laughs> win in the end anyway and if we yes. can minimize how much of the capital we've built over the last three four five thousand years um if we can minimize how much of that shit is eroded then right. we've done a good job yeah and i think um i know it's like it's a it's an interesting way to approach it because i completely agree with you that bitcoin is going to win the question is how long is it going to take a, yeah, and how much human suffering is going to occur mm-hmm. between now and then. That's it. And so I do think that, you know, for anyone who hasn't actually read at least the first book in the foundation series, don't watch the TV show. It's just, <laughs> just a waste. Yeah. But if you haven't read the fir- first book, you should, cause I think it's actually probably the most applicable like sci-fi book to, to everything that's going on right now. There's so many great parallels. Um, you know, it's funny cause we obviously were thinking about that stuff for the last two years when we started the company. And and that's why we, you know, we named the company foundation, but I was thinking a lot more like, Oh, you just need to get people to take uh, self custody over their keys. And that's enough to get us through. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't think that anymore. Maybe I've, I've become quite jaded. And I I think that um, the whole, general aspect of sovereignty is so important. So my view now and the company's view is that we need to do everything we can to empower people to become more sovereign as fast Mm -hmm. as possible so that the ones who want to can actually do it. 
because there's so many people right now who are listening to all these great podcasts. I mean, some of the best ones are like, you know, Tales from the Crypt, uh, you know, or Citadel Dispatch, The Falmavera, like those ones that are more technical and breaking down the tools mm-hmm. that you can use. And then you're like, okay, well, all right, so I need to be running like a Linux laptop. I need to be running like Calyx or Graphene on this Pixel phone. A lot of people, unfortunately, get the hardware wallet and don't take it out of the drawer. They get it mm-hmm. because they're told to get it, um, but then they they don't take it out of the drawer or they set it up without actually understanding like what they're doing or, or like what these seed words represent. And then they make a mistake or they're just intimidated to use it. And don't even get me started too when it comes to like um like the privacy tools, right? Like like Whirlpool, for example, CoinJoin, right? Being able to actually have privacy over um, you know, over your your Bitcoin transaction history, which and I and I think privacy is is an integral part of sovereignty. And those tools have a pretty high barrier to entry where mm-hmm. so many people are, hear about those now on the podcast and the blogs and Twitter and so on. And then they try to use them and they don't really know how to use them. And most people, I think, just give up. And so I think the most important thing now and, and what's really guiding our mission is, is to focus on the whole sovereignty stack, right? To try to be like, we're just going to make it so much easier to achieve not only the self-custody, but also things like, like privacy. Um, and I think when I look at like the landscape of, of companies in the space, cause you know, you're, you're doing a startup, we're only two years old. You're always kind of evaluating the competition and, and uh, you know, and, and ever, and just the landscape as a whole, you know, I don't see really any other company that is truly focused on the intersection of like the self-custody and the privacy and also just the general like user security, right? There's other things that a sovereign individual needs to be able to do, like securely store your files, you know, in an encrypted way, not just throwing them on iCloud, like using mm-hmm. two-factor authentication in an effective way, not just using your phone number, right? You know, there's all these interesting things that I think people need to do, want to do so on. And we're trying to put ourselves at like the intersection of all of that and try to become like the sovereignty company, right? And so it is a shift from just making just a device that didn't even have an app, you know, last year. And I think it's going to be something that's going to take us years to build out. But I hope that we can at least, you know, lower the barrier enough where uh, where we have sovereign adoption of Bitcoin. I, I do think the biggest risk to Bitcoin today, um, maybe not risk in the long term, but risk in terms of conflict in the short term is like fungibility and and saying like okay well bitcoin becomes something that's more regulated no no one really owns the end asset if you own the asset but oh you know we're gonna we're gonna do tons of analysis on your coins and oh you mm-hmm. can't deposit this on the exchange because this touched a mixer uh 10 transactions ago or it touched a mixer five transactions after you withdrew from mm-hmm. the exchange because they're mm-hmm. watching both sides right i actually think that's the biggest threat right now so i think um you know, we're we're thinking a lot about, you know, how do how do we make it, how do we make this privacy and, and general sovereignty tool toolkit more accessible to users so that, you know, maybe we can we can fix that and have enough people using Bitcoin in a truly sovereign manner in the next couple of years and before we end up in some really dystopian type mm-hmm. surveilled, you know, coin that that where everyone's buying through an ETF or Coinbase or whatever. Totally. So that, that's what we're thinking a lot about uh, today. Did totally see eye to eye to, with you on that. I think the, um, 
the the lack of an ETF is a fucking blessing, and the, the I think so too. Probably, yeah. Yeah, the longer that stays out of uh, everyone's, like you know, all these idiots running around yelling about, oh, we need an ETF to fucking save us, uh, absolute morons. Well, look I today, think. BlackRock and Coinbase. I know. Yeah, today, yeah, and their totally. stock went up like twenty percent. I was like, well, that's a match made in heaven, you know? <laughs> it really is. Like, I literally tweeted about it as soon as I saw it. I was like, oh, there we go. The the attack on Bitcoin continues. Basically, mm. it's that that's you know all enemies of Bitcoin. So mm. what's um, you use the word sovereign a lot. Um, yeah. People define this uh, various ways. Curious. Mm. What, what's your personal definition? What does that actually mean? We, to you? we have like our simple, everything's a triangle <laughs> as a mm-hmm. logo. So we have our sovereign Trinity, you know, which mm-hmm. is the, the money, right? Control of your money, the data and identity, which I think are kind of, you know, attached in a sense. Mm-hmm. So control of your money, control of your own data, your own identity, and then privacy. That's mm-hmm. what we define sovereignty, very simply. When we're thinking mm-hmm. about building a product, when we're thinking about, you know, just the definition in general, that, that's how we're thinking about it. And, and I do think too many people, and I was on uh, with Seth for Privacy on his podcast, mm-hmm. Opt Out, mm-hmm. a while back, and we're talking about that, where I think too many people think of sovereignty as like the control over your own life, and they don't think about like the privacy aspect, which I think is fundamental uh, to sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So yeah, money, data, identity, and privacy would be how we define it. Okay. Um, the pr- the privacy one is an interesting one. So I've uh, I'm a big personal advocate of uh, privacy. Like I hate people. Like my my biggest pet peeve, or one of my biggest pet peeves. I have too many to to list, but <laughs> uh, is like people what I kind of call like the do-gooders of the world, like, you know, that person who kind of like wants to know everything you're doing, you know, for your own good, right? It's like that, it's it's a classic uh, bureaucrat, right? There was this really funny... Um, <laughs> like the really, nanny state kind of thing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the nanny state. But on Instagram, I saw this really funny video earlier today, which I'm going to have to see if I can insert it into the podcast <laughs> somehow. But it's like... It's a, it's like a throwback from this old movie where there's this couple making out on the beach and then the, the wave just washes up some dude like on the beach and he's like looking at them, you know? And that's like, that's the state. It's like, fuck off, man. No one asked you to be here. Like, I don't need your help. Just fucking leave me alone. And you know, these, these companies like the, the, the surveillance ones and this and that, like, man, the amount of times when I was uh, running Amber and CEO of that, like that I would get reached out to by, whether it was, you know, chain, chain anal and God knows whoever other fucking shithead company. And I'd be like, you people are a fucking abomination. Fuck off. Like don't contact my business. Um, It's just, it's sickening. But my, my one thing about privacy and I'd like to hear your feedback on this is that a lot of people say privacy is a right. And I think that's a dangerous stance because um, rights imply uh, a responsibility on the other side of the ledger. Mm. Um, and what I mean by this is that privacy is not a standard. Like it does, doesn't just come natural. Like when you're born, um, you come into the world naked. Um, to attain privacy, uh, you need to acquire something to either cover yourself with or you need to, you know, pay for a product or service to to deliver you some privacy. Now, 
you know, another analogy I could use is like when you build a bathroom, you you build a door and you put a fucking lock on it, right? So it, the bathroom just doesn't naturally come private. Like that's so you, so you have to do something about it. And and I think this is how I try and rationalize when people argue about Bitcoin's you know privacy and the base layer is not private and all that sort of stuff. And I try and say, look, privacy is fucking extraordinarily important, but it happens as a product and a service. Um, it doesn't happen as a as a given, for example, mm-hmm. at least in the context of uh, of Bitcoin and the base chain. You know, like right. I think privacy can happen here. You know, sure, with the device, it can happen with the the software, it can happen with things that we build that are abstracted, which become services. Because down the track, if we think about living on a on a Bitcoin standard, um, if you want ultra extreme fucking privacy there should be a service fee like that, you know, someone has to go to the effort of providing Mm -hmm. some sort of solution to, to, uh, to magnify your privacy. So I wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah. I would, I would say that the, the foundational right is probably property rights. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Which, which then you could kind of argue that everything is built on top of that. And if you kind of take that, you extend the analogy to Bitcoin, it's like, Bitcoin is that fundamental property, which as we know, you're able to actually own it yourself without relying on a custodian. And so that means, I mean, that's pretty cool in terms of the historical uh, element of that. Um, is privacy a right? I, I don't know. I mean, I think that what privacy really is, is it is it means that the individual has the choice of what they want to disclose about themselves mm-hmm. to the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe people are willing to make those trade-offs and that's up to them. I just want them to have the ability to choose. Maybe mm-hmm. that's the best way to frame it where, yeah, if you want people are going to go on social media and share whatever they want about themselves, you know, and that's, that's up to them. But I do think it, it would be a shame if we, we lived in a world where, um, where you didn't have the choice and it was just the government or whoever, you know, always know everything about you, like a, like a, 100%. you know, Orwellian style, right. Dystopia. And, um, which, which people are living in right now, like in China, you know, with social credit scoring and, and, and mass video surveillance and that kind of thing. So to me, I think it's like, it's not the fundamental, right. I think property rights are the fundamental rights. Um, but I think it's something that, you know, that people need to be able to choose what to disclose or not disclose. Um, and then in terms of Bitcoin, I mean, like, I feel like Bitcoin has made like the base chain has made the right privacy trade-offs. Like, I think this was very well thought out because I would argue more important than privacy is our collective confidence that there's only 21 mm-hmm. million coins. Mm-hmm. And if you do uh, a chain like Monero, which has great privacy and that's fundamentally just baked in, you're trading off the hundred percent confidence that they're, that the supply hasn't changed. You lose that ability to, to know that. And so I feel like we made the right trade. Are we, I mean, Satoshi, you know, and the, and the Bitcoin core developers over the years have probably stuck to the right trade-offs. But I do think then that uh, companies and individuals have a responsibility to build out that toolkit to, to, to make it accessible. And I just feel like right now the toolkit is, is there for advanced users but especially on the Bitcoin side, that toolkit um, is is still lacking in in terms of being accessible. And I think because of that, so many users have just 
not thought about the privacy aspect of it and have just gone to the exchange or, or using some kind of, I mean, you know, there's even uh self cust. I mean, give an example, you know, ledger. Um, I know in their funding deck last year, uh, one of the first things in the first slide is bragging about how much crypto is stored on ledger devices. You should not know that. Mm-hmm. Right. You should not know that at all. Mm-hmm. That's not a thing you should know. So I just feel like it's weird because even the companies that are many of the companies that are preaching self-custody are completely ignoring the privacy aspect of things. And therefore, I think the users of those tools are not actually sovereign individuals. I I, I love that. I think something what you're mentioning while you're explaining the um the Monero piece, just I just wrote it down. It's like Monero made the trade-off to uh, prioritize the privacy service over the property right, whereas Bitcoin is property rights first, privacy service second. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's a good generalization. You know, I, I think if you were to get more nuanced, you would say that you still you still have confidence that if you're using Monero that you own the keys, right? That is that you control mm-hmm. the keys and so on, but you don't necessarily have perfect confidence how many are in circulation right and so therefore you could make an argument that it's dilute it could be dilutive Mm -hmm. of your property Mm -hmm. and therefore Mm -hmm. i see how yeah Yeah. so i think i think i think how you're framing it is is accurate yeah because see my my position is that again this is getting philosophical here uh, uh putting my john valis hat on um we i i think we just need to be careful as a as a group to to not sort of fall down the, you know, the the path of arguing about, you know, rights, 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 because then we sound like fucking blue-haired hippies. Um, I think we need to argue for <laughs> privacy, you know, as an edge um, and argue for its merits uh, mm-hmm. for society and, and as individuals because privacy is better for this, 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 this mm-hmm. reason. And I, I think there's a there's a there's a there's an important difference between a standard and a right. And I think a standard is something that we create and through competition, we elevate standards and a standard of, you know, some level of base privacy is, you know, different to a right. It's like, you know, the the standard has been baked in because of, um, you know, the competition amongst uh, companies or service providers Mm -hmm. who, who have understood the demand from the market marketplace because the you know the core merits of the privacy service have been argued well and therefore you know compete each other to the point where you know this is the base and if you don't have that you're just a shit company that no one's going to use um, right. and I think that's a that's a it's a more uh, it's, it's a stronger position to come from I think than um, you know pulling out our billboards and waving about rights well, and expecting someone to hand them to us based on what you're saying, then I think what's most important is that there's a broad demand for privacy Mm -hmm. tools. And I think Mm -hmm. that has been the problem historically. And I think that is starting to change. You know, I think, I I think 2020 was an inflection point. And I think Mm -hmm. everything since then has helped accelerate this hopefully unstoppable trend towards privacy, sovereignty, so on. Um, and, you know, in 2020, we saw the inflection point where for, I think for the first time, more Bitcoin flowed out of exchanges than in, which is a really cool indicator. Mm-hmm. And then 
you know, we were seeing some surveys as well that I think, at least in America, I think the majority now of the public cares about privacy and surveys. I mean, surveys, I don't know, right? There's so many things that could be whatever with that, but um, that's pretty cool to see because I think that was something that a few years ago wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. And you're starting to see even the mainstream Apple making privacy a fundamental aspect of their advertising. You know, privacy, that's iPhone. Mm -hmm. Now, of Mm -hmm. course, the reason they're doing that, I think, is because their services are shit compared to Google. And so they have to lean on the privacy. But for whatever reason they're doing it, um, they are doing it. And even if they're not offering actual privacy, um, at least they're starting to wake people up to the importance and you're starting to see that message all over, which I very much appreciate from Apple. So I, I do think that it, a lot of it comes down to the consumer demand. And, and I feel like maybe we are kind of taking this calculated long-term bet that people are waking up and that more and more people will start to care. Cause if that's not the case, then I don't know how far we're going to go as a company, right? Because uh, you know, people might just not care. And that, that actually kind of holds true for any of the self-custody you know, related companies as well, where you're kind of hoping and trying to get people to care about the importance of it. Mm-hmm. But if the majority of people end up just not caring, then they're go on to Coinbase or wherever. And and that's that or the ETF and, and that's that. And so I do think like, yeah, instead of de- demanding it, like we as a community should be educating people on just why it's so important. There's so many discussions about the tools that are available um, there aren't there, there. I don't know if there's enough discussions to get people really caring about the why, you know, maybe that involves kind of scaring them too a little bit, you know, about how, how not private Bitcoin is today, right. About mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. if you receive a, your, your paycheck in Bitcoin, and then you go buy a coffee on chain with that same, you know, UTXO, you know, that person you buy the coffee from is able to go look back and see how much you were just paid by your employer. That alone, I mean, if people would not stand for that if they actually understood that was how mm-hmm. Bitcoin worked. And I think we've kind of got into this environment, um, which I don't really like on Bitcoin Twitter, where you can't criticize Bitcoin. If you mm-hmm. point out a flaw, you get like ripped apart. Canceled, yeah. And that's bad because we need, if everyone... If every user of Bitcoin properly understood the trade-offs, they might be looking and, and working harder to care about things like like their privacy. And then we may see more companies making more tools that that lower the barriers uh, to privacy and sovereignty. Yeah, th- there's that. And I think the the other piece is, um, and, and I don't know how this one would actually work, so bear with me, I'm thinking out aloud, but... Sure. Privacy has traditionally been uh, an edge in some sense, like it gives you a a competitive advantage if you're Mm -hmm. able to selectively reveal uh, information. So, you know, much of much of market dynamics are um, are formed and shaped by the winners. And, you know, when the winners have some sort of edge, uh, you know, privacy is one of the tools or the services that they use in order to give them an edge. Like, you know, one buys a car so that they can travel from A to B faster. And then everybody else starts to buy a car because this motherfucker is traveling from A to B faster <laughs> and I'm not right. So it's like, yeah, they want to, they want to get ahead. So I think, you know, we, we've got to use the the stick component of like, you know, Hey, if you don't have privacy, these are all the bad things. But I think there's been very little marketing or very little discussion that 
talks about the benefits and I don't know if I can list them right now because, you know, I'm not in that, but I'm just thinking out aloud is like, can we position privacy as an absolute fucking edge that, you know, you get further in life, things are better. Um, you know, mm. it's an advantage over people. Cause, cause that'll actually be what mm. acts as the carrot uh, along the pursuit of um, creating consumer demand for the right. service of privacy. And what you're explaining is kind of like the mimetic aspect of, of totally. Uh, yeah of any kind of product or yep. just humans in general. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. that's interesting for you to say, I have to think more about that too, because yeah, we, we definitely are not even close to some kind of inflection point where that would be the case today. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. I think, and I also think that, um, you know, just from like a, like a branding and product perspective, most of like the privacy products that I feel like are on the market, they're, they're usually doing like, um, like dark colors, you know? totally. Yeah, usually going the shit out like of someone. Yeah. Cypherpunk and the when I talked about before how you like see like a like passport on the table, we want want to like pick it up. But like you, you use a privacy product, you see a privacy product, we want you to like feel comfortable using mm-hmm. it. I feel like there's all these names that the branding that the whole approach to it is not always, but usually it's it's like intimidating and you're like ooh this like this isn't for me like i don't i don't identify as the cypherpunk type you know mm-hmm. type figure and so i do think that something really important is to to change that right to mm-hmm. change how you actually present these these products and tools uh to the world because um i think they're largely intimidating in their current mm-hmm. forms and and sometimes even off-putting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely like, could, could we make it the thing, like, can we basically Appleify, you know, privacy? Which, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I mean, if Apple can kind of start that trend, <laughs> you know, with, well, they've with started advertising to do it exactly, yeah. But the problem is that I don't like the way in that they're doing it. So, for mm. example, they have that iCloud Relay, which is their VPN service, and it's quite an innovation. They use two backend VPN providers, so you bounce to one, and then you bounce to the other. And so the ultimate provider that acts as like your end IP address for whatever service you're using, let's say you're on Netflix in a different country or whatever, you know, the IP that Netflix sees uh, and the IP that that VPN provider sees cannot be traced back to you because it's gone through another VPN Mm -hmm. provider beforehand. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. I've never heard of anyone doing that, you know, in any of the common privacy oriented VPNs today. Apple's doing it. Downsides are that, you know, it's completely closed source. You don't have any verification that's actually happening. And then you also have to use the iCloud ecosystem, which is mm-hmm. a little concerning. And then also you find out that certain th- things on, on the Mac, for example, uh, certain like call home type base level operating system functions are not going through the VPN. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so you, you, you're like, wait a minute, like from a privacy advocate, sovereignty advocates perspective, this is not that great. But from like a technology perspective there and a UX perspective, there is really interesting stuff that we can learn from. And they're also doing the other, like the privacy email type thing, where when you go to sign up for an account now, you can have, make an iCloud, you know, I forgot what it's called, but you know, you can spin up a fake email address and that's bad because it gets you dependent on iCloud, which, you know, uh, is not encrypted usually. And so, you know, that's not good, but we can still learn from that and we can Mm -hmm. learn from the user experiences and, and the you know, the, the copy and so on that they're presenting towards the users and try to build on that to Mm -hmm. offer actually good experiences that, that, um, that even the hardcore privacy people will, you know, give a thumbs up to. 
Totally. And, and this is, this is the, this is where the, I guess the, the thread that we need to find is like, we, we need to not just be better, but learn how to position ourselves as better. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's, what's gonna, that, that's what wins in the marketplace at the end of the day. Anyway, um, speaking of which, this kind of leads me into the final thing that I wanted to touch on, which is what I'm personally curious about is the longer term sort of vision or larger vision for foundation. I mean, I know, at least in my mind, I would hope that this is just the first step. Like mm-hmm. what, what else Give me the big picture. What do you guys want to do at yeah. Foundation long term? Like, let's say someone wrote you a fucking ten billion dollar check tomorrow. <laughs> What's Zach doing? Well, without without giving too much concrete information mm-hmm. away about our actual specific product roadmap, I mean, what we're trying to do is is become the one stop shop for you to become a sovereign individual. Mm-hmm. Is like the is the quick pitch, right? So that, so that doesn't just mean the hardware wallet, right? Uh, that's an aspect of it, having the actual offline device to store your important things, um, keys and 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 other stuff like that, you know, in, in, a, in a way that's difficult to access. Um, but now we have the software component, you know, we have Envoy, uh, which is our app on iOS and Android. Mm-hmm. And that's just a simple Bitcoin watch-only hardware wallet today that is compatible with Passport. That's going to expand rapidly over the mm-hmm. coming years, even just the coming year. Um, and that'll also, you'll see expand to other platforms like desktop as well. Um, and then, yeah, I think we'll do, we'll, we'll do other products as well um, that, that allow you to more easily, you know, uh, control your money, your data and identity, and then, and have that baseline strong, good level of, of privacy. And so um, you'll, you'll, you'll basically you'll basically see kind of our app Envoy act as the foothold for everything that kind of glues all our, all mm-hmm. our devices together mm-hmm. um, and provides that tightly integrated, almost Apple quality experience in terms of the onboarding and, you know, the, just the day-to-day use and updates and so on for the devices. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll see that app expand to all the different, you know, platforms and, uh, and then you'll see other devices from us, you know, in the coming years. And we really want to just radically lower the barriers to entry, you know, to becoming a sovereign individual. Uh, so really Passport is just step one. Um, and, uh, you know, Envoy was, was such a crucial step because we realized that we can't just make the hardware and use other people's software wallets. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. we can. I think that actually worked really well last year with our Founders Edition, but we just weren't happy enough with the user experience that that our customers were getting. And we we're like, damn, now we, now we need to own the entire end-to-end process. And once we own that entire end-to-end process, you know, we can we can provide the Apple style UX. And I think you'll totally. also see, yeah, you also see services from us as well, like optional services, I think is really important, you know, to when it comes to um, you know, privacy, custody, and so on. And so I, I think you know, we're, we're trying to build this new category of, of sovereign computing, as we're calling it. And I don't see too many other people trying to do that. So I'm really excited about you know, the coming years and you know, building up the team and everything to do that. There's 11 of us right now. I think by end of this year, we'll be, we'll be 16, 17 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, really excited. So I, I think the building something that is beautiful that talk to it that talks to itself i I think it's a winning strategy and Mm -hmm. at the end of the day like apple showed it now 
you know, the, I think in a world that didn't have, for example, fiat money and Wall Street and all the other stuff, I actually think there'd be many more apples um, each, which, you know, competitively provide their own beautiful experiences. And, um, and we'd have a much flatter kind of distribution uh, among different competitors. And I, and I think that's one of the things that Bitcoin will uh, help the world achieve. And yes, I think businesses like you guys, like uh, Embassy, you know, like uh, CoinKite, you know, sort of the three that I can think of the at the top of my head, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, moving in that direction, you're, you're building cool shit that, I mean, I, I don't know enough about MVK stuff to know whether his stuff all talks to itself, but I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of cool stuff happening there. I know Nemesis building sovereignty sovereignty hardware. So would you kind of, would you agree with my assessment there that you guys are kind of pioneering in that space? Like, is there similarities there or is there, is there some differences there maybe that you'd kind of. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, firstly, the space is still quite small Mm -hmm. and I would say that the companies are building that that exist are building for different user groups. Firstly, Mm -hmm. I think we're Mm -hmm. trying to go a little more mass market. And I would describe like a like a coin kite as being a little bit more advanced, right? At least for their current product line, that could change. Um, and so I think there's that one aspect of it where we're trying to position ourselves more as the mass market, but while while having products that like the hardcore people approve of and want to yeah, give yeah, to like yeah. their friends and family, you know, because we're not going to be able, we're not going to do every feature that a cold card device can do, but the features that we do, we're going to do it so well and so accessible to the widest possible audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also say that I think we may be the the only ones that are, are truly. Um, crossing over into like the Apple style hardware software services approach where everything is like really tightly integrated together. And we're truly, you know, uh, going end to end when it comes to making like the actual consumer hardware in the sense where it's like a hopefully Apple quality consumer hardware. I haven't fully seen that from any other company. I think with our passport batch two, we're getting much closer Hopefully, mm-hmm. within the next, with, with the Gen three device, whenever we get to that, we'll we'll be there, and mm-hmm. I think that's going to be exciting because, um, you know, I I think you know, the Node projects are are usually uh, just kind of integrating like Raspberry Pi, you know, um, building some great software for sure, but building it on someone else's hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're trying to provide, as you could tell from even like the like the unboxing experience and, and the yeah, physical feel of the device yeah. and all that. We're trying to get to like the Apple style, like industrial design and and hardware engineering and and then tie that all together with really beautiful, easy to use software. You know, right now the mobile apps, I'm sure that'll expand to be desktop as well. I don't know if anyone is truly building out the team that can do all of that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's, cause we have a, the design aspect from an industrial design and a UI design, um, the, uh, in, in-house electrical and mechanical engineering, the embedded software engineering, but then also like the web or mobile app type engineering. It's a lot of different disciplines to bring together under one roof. So we may end up having, I think the most like robust, uh, 
multidisciplinary team in the space or among, you know, one of the most robust multidisciplinary. Because even the stuff that Ledger or Trezor are shipping, they've been around so much longer than we have and better capitalized than us, um, especially Ledger. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't, we're already put, pumping out product that that I think is higher quality from a physical perspective, which to me just shows that, you know, pr- our priorities are in a different place. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, Ledger is one of those strange, like, actually, I did have a question in the beginning, which I wanted to ask you, but we kind of like <laughs> skipped it. But it, since we're yeah. talking about Ledger now is like, did, did you guys ever have what um, was there ever a a, a temptation or b an influence um, to try and push you down more the ledger path because they've clearly been, you know, uh, economically speaking, very successful um, and have made a fucking shit ton of money. Um, <laughs> did, did that ever exist, or you know, were you guys always uh, Bitcoin only, and has that sort of been part of your DNA from the beginning? Yeah, and, and I can and I call ourselves Bitcoin centric. Always has been what mm-hmm. we use. We never use the term Bitcoin only because we're we're interested in like the general sovereignty stack mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of which Bitcoin I think is the core mm-hmm. and most important. Um, but things like 2FA and other things we're also really interested in. So I would say mm-hmm. that you'll probably see more from us than just like the Bitcoin hardware wallet kind of thing. Yep. But in terms of like the ledger aspect where they're going on Twitter telling people to buy, I don't know, whatever coin, I don't even keep up anymore, right? Which which I which you see all the time from them or you know, just the way that they do the the way the hardware is designed in terms of the form factor, which makes it a lot cheaper to build or to sell at lower price points and so on. No, I mean, we're never tempted by any of that. Um, I think that we're not trying to compete like directly with them, even though we're mm-hmm. all hardware mm-hmm. wallets. Our goal isn't to be like, we're going to go compete with Ledger. Our goal was to build the best Bitcoin self-custody experience. Yeah. And now it's to build the best overall sovereignty experience. Yeah, it's Bitcoin, Bitcoin-centric sovereignty experience, I should say. And that's the goal. And so even though we're watching the, the competitors and on all the other all the other companies and projects in the space, we're we're not like reacting to them. Like Good. we we know what we want to build. We have a very clear vision of what we want to build. And I think it's quite a departure from um the ledger or or treasure or or so on. Yeah. Excellent. No, very good answer. I think um that that's both a mature answer, but also a very good answer from the leader of a business is that I think too many people running startups that are fucking kids basically <laughs> get caught up with whatever is shiny and glittering yeah. and they go and chase that. And the, you know, the, instead of being influenced by their internal vision and mission, they're influenced by the marketplace completely. And I think, yeah, well, you have to have principles. Yeah. I think that's really important. And unless you're Al <laughs> yes. You have to have principles, right? And you have to know like what you stand for. And it's funny because, you know, some usually when you do a company, you're like, we need a mission statement. We need a set of values. Uh, we have that, you know, um, and we stick to it, you know, or we'll adjust it as necessary. We have our internal values as well, but you have to have principles and you have to be driven by that those principles and, you know, our principles are, you know, uh, Bitcoin centric, uh, open source, sovereignty, privacy. Um, we have actually, uh, manufacture local manufacturing in our case, you know, mm-hmm. manufacturing in the USA is like a, is a principle for us that we hope to be able mm-hmm. to do, bring more and more onshore, you know, over time. So you just have to stick to those, those principles, um, and through every aspect of the business, not just even the product, 
or, or the website and how you brand yourself, but even what you're doing behind the scenes, mm-hmm. how you're mm-hmm. running the team, how, how are you storing customer information? You know, if you preach uh, sovereignty, but you're using MailChimp or something like that, or you're using a Shopify as your store, you probably aren't actually applying your principles throughout the entire business, mm-hmm. right? And we've mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. seen the downsides of that in the last, you know, couple of years with those constant data breaches and, and that kind of thing caused by those kinds of decisions. And so I think being principled is so, so important. Other thing I think is most important is building for yourself. Like if you're, if you start a company in the space, because you have an idea of what a good product could be that can make yes. money, but you're not building it for yourself as the user. I don't know how you get started. Cause like the whole idea, BS or, I mean, you're a jobs fan. I'm a jobs fan. You know how we, how jobs would feel about focus groups or mm-hmm, user mm-hmm, feedback totally. or anything like that. I fucking hate that shit. <laughs> so like we build for ourselves. When we, when we hire someone right now, because we're still a small team, obviously we want to know they can do the job we're hiring them for. But we really want to know if they're philosophically aligned mm-hmm. and if they are essentially going to be a going to be or are already a user of the kind of products that we're building because otherwise you just you can't motivate yourself you can't be mm-hmm. successful you're making stupid decisions uh and so one of the things that just makes this if anything like so easy for us is the fact that we're all philosophically aligned and we're we're the users of our own products you know and and so um we know if the product is good because if we want to use it personally then the product is good Beautifully put. Um, and thank you for bringing up the, the folks groups thing. This, this is something whenever I've run businesses in the past, like this shit drives me fucking crazy like this. And <laughs> it's such a Silicon Valley thing as well. Right. It's such oh. a, you know, everything's driven by, you know, some fucking survey of 20 people. And, you know, that's what our company is going to do now. I'm like fucking hell. Or like the, that poor, the, the poor team at Amazon that literally all they do is figure out a B test to figure out what color <laughs> to make the, the buy now or add to cart button. And they're like, Oh, we can increase conversions by one and a half percent. (laughs) And it's just like, I'm like, Oh, like that's how you, and then you make probably 250 K a year base or something for that. And it's like, that's how you live your life. Like now. And so, yeah, I feel like if you're, if you're in this space, you have to be, if you're doing any company, any startup, right. You have to be building for yourself. Totally. Totally. Dude. I really, I really enjoyed this chat. This is the first of this kind of chat I've had. And um and I'm excited to see what you guys bring to the fore over the over the coming years, honestly. Um Thank you. you know, this is a this is a fantastic first start. I will be keeping an eye on what you guys do. Um, you know, hopefully we can catch up again in a year and kind of discuss I mean, maybe maybe 18 months, you know, when batch three is out finally and you know that yeah. beautiful thread sort of comes together and you that'd be fun. Good about yeah. everything. I would enjoy that. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, is there, is there any final words, you know, maybe where people can find out about you and foundation yeah. and everything like that? Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, you can go to our website at foundationdevices.com. You can learn more about our, our products, Passport and Envoy, uh, learn more about the company values, read our blog. We have some good blog posts, both about like the philosophy, like the, uh, comparing it to Asimov's foundation series, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, or, or even more practical stuff. You know, we have people like, uh, Lily and Bitcoin Q and a on the team who are, who are writing great content and, and, you know, technical guides and stuff as well, which is fantastic. Um, and I'm, I'm just a uh, Zach Herbert on Twitter. Perfect. All right, buddy. Well, thank you again. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Wake Up Podcast. Find us on the Fountain app and send us a boost with a comment. I'll try and read them each week and send you a shout out. And remember to grab a copy of the Uncommunist Manifesto and join us in defeating plague that is consuming our world.